It is kind of an unwritten rule, isn't it, that just makes sense internally that at least two professions in the world, airplane pilots and surgeons, should always be older than you are, right? You desire that, that when you are about to get onto a plane, that you look at the person manning that to say, you you clearly have more experience, wisdom, and insight, and maturity than I do. Because you know about yourself that no matter how old you are or how well you dress up on any given occasion, that there is still a profound level level of immaturity about you. Um, Things that you find funny that surprise you that you found funny when you were 14 or something and they they still trigger with you. And I know one of you is thinking, and your pastor should also be older than you. And there's nothing really I can do about that. So sorry, we we won't derail too much on that. But there's, I read an article this week that said we actually begin to die at the age of 25 biologically. It's when our bodies start to let us know that we're not going to be here forever. And, and I, that's reinforced for me most days. I listen to Mike and Mike in the morning on the way into church on ESPN radio. And when they talk about sort of the peak years of performance for the typical athlete, it varies slightly between whether you're a baseball player or a basketball player or a football player. But when they talk about it, they start to talk about a person's contract. And then they'll say something like, well, you know, I mean, he is 30 now. <laughs> Third, really? Like that? Wow. We got to make plans for his, him being gone because he's old as it relates to his peak athletic performance. Well, today we're going to a passage where the Apostle Paul, between last week and this week, realizes that he's on, metaphorically, the back nine of his career. Um, he, he now realizes that he will not see the return of the Lord Jesus in his lifetime. He had hoped, most of the disciples had hoped that there would be a very quick and dramatic return of the Lord at some point within their lifetime. And when we look at the letters of Paul and break them out chronologically, we have this sense of anticipation and in hope in his part to say, I I can't wait to see that. And between these two chapters in the book of Acts, there is a shift where he begins to acknowledge in writing and in teaching that he's pretty certain that he's going to pass away before that happens. And so he begins to prepare other people for his departure, that he's not going to be around much longer, and so he wants to tell them what are for him the most important things that they need to know so that they will be just set up well to carry on the work that he has started. So I invite you to come with me to the book of Acts in chapter 20. If you're using one of these Bibles here that's provided for you in the pew, you'll find this on page 929. Acts chapter 20, page 929. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. 
On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and had eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Middelin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Caius, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the next day we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. 
So there, if you didn't believe me on the front end, hopefully it's clear to you that Paul has in mind that as he's now talking to people, he has final moments with them to say parting words of grace and encouragement to them along the way for the phase of ministry that they will be in that he himself won't be around to observe. And the first thing he does is he gives them encouragement. As he concludes his message at the end of our chapter by saying it's more blessed to give than to receive, we're going to kind of walk through this whole chapter and see all of the things that Paul is giving to those to whom he loves. And the first thing that he does, it tells us in the opening of this chapter, is that he's going around and giving encouragement to people. It's one of the best things to give away, just like knowledge, because to give it away, you have no less of it yourself, right? When you know something and you pass it on to someone else, you don't lose any of what you know. You've just doubled that knowledge. When you encourage someone in their life and in what they're doing, by encouraging them, it has this amazing way of actually encouraging you. And you're no the less for having given to someone else the encouragement they needed. And if anything, you both feel stronger than you were in the first place. And so it becomes one of the, well, why wouldn't I give this away more? (laughs) Why wouldn't I be more encouraging to people? Wow, what, what a blessing it is to me when people give me words of encouragement and how that spurs me on to do more things. Why would I not be incredibly generous with giving away encouragement as much as possible? Paul is desiring to do that. He's desiring to spread to all the people he's met in the various churches as he's traveling to these different cities as much encouragement as he can to keep on doing what they're doing and that he is no lesser for extending this great generosity. We also get a sense of a calendar that Paul has a deadline. They've celebrated the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and they're trying to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost, which means this chapter is actually taking place in the very season that we're in right now in this time of year. Passover is when we celebrated Easter and we anticipate the celebration of Pentecost Sunday on May 24th. It's that time in between those two. So it's around this time of the year that he's trying to say what he can to these people, but he very specifically wants to make it back to Jerusalem. And one of the things that he wants to make it back there for is he wants to give an offering to the poor. He has in all of these churches, as he's established them and preached them the gospel and they've received it, he's told them about the people in Jerusalem that are in need and that are suffering, that actually Paul was a part of that story. He was one of the ones in Jerusalem who was persecuting the Christians and punishing their leaders. And so Paul knows very well what the people in Jerusalem are dealing with. And so as he's going around and giving encouragement to everyone in all these different cities throughout the empire, he's also asking them to give a bit of money so that when he goes to Jerusalem, he can give to them support for all of their needs. We see this specifically, I'll show you it, in Romans chapter 15, if your Bible's still open. You just turn a few pages to the right. On page 950, um, Paul tells the Romans why he wants to go to Jerusalem and what he's been doing. So yeah, this is on page 950, uh, beginning in verse, let's pick it up in 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them 
For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And that's where we'll stop. Paul writes this letter to the Romans while he's traveling back to Jerusalem. And he's explaining to them, the reason I'm not coming to you and I'm going here is because I was collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. And they have needs. And I want to help meet those needs. And so I can't you know, tell people, hey, I'm raising money for them. And then it takes me five years to get back there. They'll say, really, what are you, what are you doing with that? If they're in need and they need help right now, and that's what you're asking for, then it makes sense that Paul has this sort of eagerness to get back to Jerusalem, to contribute to the needs of the poor. But Paul wants every church that's now planted in a new city to feel connected to this mother church where everything got started, where all of the action happened, where Jesus was raised up on a cross and died, and then where he was seen after he rose again. That all these other things and all these other cities that can't communicate like we can through internet or uh, through Skype or other things, he wants them to feel connected. And one of the ways he desires to connect them is to say, you can help them. Just like you've heard about what happened there and you're the recipient of that good news of what Jesus did in, in and around Jerusalem, you can be a part of what's going on there if you're willing to be generous and to give to those things. And Paul was so concerned about that. It's one of the reasons that when he has all the elders together, he says to them that he personally coveted nothing from them. He didn't want their silver. He didn't want their gold. He didn't want their apparel. One of the reasons he has to say that is because he has been collecting a lot of money. And he wants them to know that he's not collecting any of that for his own sake. He's collecting it for the sake of those in need. And so he says to them, I was with you for three years. I worked night and day to demonstrate to you, I'll cover my own wages. I'll cover my own trip. When I'm asking you to give to help these people in need, I really, really mean it. All of the money is meant to go to them because they're in need. And I want to get there as quickly as I can. And so it's this way in which he is inviting them to participate in what's going on in Jerusalem. I think there's another component to it, though, that he's not only giving an offering to the poor, but in Paul's mind, he he uses this imagery elsewhere, that he is intending to give an offering to the Lord. And there's a reason he wants to get there by Pentecost. Pentecost is exactly 50 days after Passover, or the the Jews would have called it the Feast of Weeks, that there's seven weeks of seven days, 49 days from Passover, and then the day after that, when that 49 days is completed and the 50th day, there was this festival that was celebrated. And that's where the Holy Spirit was poured out in abundance because all these people were gathered together in Jerusalem again. And Paul wants to get back there on that day. This holiday meant a variety of things to the people of Israel. But one of the things was that it was the first opportunity they had to bring the first fruits of their crop. So that if someone was growing fruit, they would pick some of that fruit before it was fully ripened, and they would come to the temple, and they would offer it as a sacrifice. And it was a way for them to say, we believe that in this initial gift, there's more coming. In this initial offering, in these couple of bushels of produce... We believe that God is going to be faithful and there's going to be more crop that comes after it. Instead of saying, you know, we're just not sure what's going to happen in the future and so we need to make sure we store this, we need to make sure we consume this, it was their way as a demonstration of their faith to say, we're going to give the first fruits 
to show that we really believe that like God was faithful here, he's going to keep on being faithful. He's the same God. And so Paul actually has with him a group of people whose names I struggled to read through without um, messing up horribly. One day I'll meet them and they'll tell me how I did. But he has this sort of representative group of people with him that he wants to take to Jerusalem as his offering of the first fruits of the kingdom of God at work throughout the world. That for each one of these people, they represent entire cities where the gospel is advancing. And that if he can bring them together and take him with him to Jerusalem, he can show this church in Jerusalem that God is doing something so much bigger and greater than what they can see just in their own town that God is working in all of these different places and all of these different hearts and behind every person they see is a family, is a house church, is a city that is being transformed by the gospel. And so there is in Paul's mind, he, he realizes he can't control everything because he can't just you know, book a plane ticket and make sure he's there. But there's a desire on his part to be there at the time of Pentecost, not just to alleviate the needs of the poor in Jerusalem, but to encourage them by showing them all of these people from all of these different backgrounds a part of the kingdom of God and to tell them this, this kingdom is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than you. It's now so much bigger than Jerusalem. But it was also when they came and offered these first fruits, there was for the faithful Jew a specific passage out of Deuteronomy which they would have recited. And so I'll invite you to turn there with me as well. This is now going way back in your Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 26, and this is on page 167. And you'll see the kind of overlap and similarity between what the people of Israel would have said when they offered this to what Paul might have been able to say as he desired to make an offering as well. So beginning in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 26, he says... And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into your land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number... And there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given to me. And you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And that's where we'll stop. So as they offered this, they would retell their story that our founding father was a wanderer and his family was small, but God made from him a great nation, a nation that became so great and so populous that it intimidated the powers that be at the time. And so they oppressed 
God's people. And God delivered them. And Paul is living this reality in the new covenant in so many similar ways. From a small beginning in Jerusalem, they are now becoming a great nation. And the larger the church is growing, the more people are persecuting them. And the powers that be are trying to stop them. And he wants to get to Jerusalem and stand before God himself and say, God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, deliver us. Deliver all of these people in the cities that they live in and all of the persecution that they're going through. Do for us what you did for them. And we bring this as the first fruits, as an example to you of your faithfulness, and we simply ask you to do more. And so there's Paul wanting to give an offering to the Lord, and he's also wanting to give wisdom then to the churches. So as he's making this trip back, All along the way, he's stopping and he's wanting to give wisdom. Wisdom like knowledge, like encouragement, it only grows when you share it. You don't get any less of it once you pass it on to someone else. They're the wiser, you're the wiser. It's a beautiful and amazing thing, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to give wisdom. He says he wants to do it so much, he preaches till midnight. And a guy sitting up on a windowsill gets so tired because Paul is going so long as he's trying to give wisdom that he actually falls out the window and everyone thinks he dies. His name is Eutychus. Now, if you stop there, I was thinking then through of an illustration of how, you know, I always try to apply that in, you know, preaching on Sunday. I don't want to go too long because every Sunday school teacher knows there's this point when adults are in charge for the majority of time and then there's a transition moment where they're not in charge anymore. And we try to be done here before that transition happens for the sake of not burning out all of our volunteers. But Paul doesn't get the lesson that he should preach any shorter because he goes downstairs. He says, hey, this guy's fine. Let's eat and let's keep going. And he preaches all the way until sunrise. He has this urgency because he knows he is somewhere that he might not be again. He is talking to people that he, he assumes he will never speak to again this side of eternity. And so he is pouring out wisdom to them all night long, all the way until after a midnight snack, all the way until sunrise, teaching them what he can. And then there's a group that he wants to talk to in Ephesus, but it, if he's going to make it in Jerusalem on time, he has, to, he has to skip past them, so he asks them to travel to him and meet him along the way. And he gives this discourse at the end of the chapter where he passes on wisdom to them and he says to them that he knows he's not going to see them again, that he is sought to be faithful in teaching them in public and from house to house everything that they needed to know. It's quite a profound statement that he makes in, in verse 23. He says in chapter 20, here we're back in Acts, he knows that the Spirit has spoken to him that in every city he's going to face imprisonment and afflictions. He understands that the road is only going to get increasingly hard for him. And he's looking back in his life, and instead of then addressing the crowd and saying, guys, I don't want any of you to do what I'm doing, (laughs) because it's hard, and I didn't realize it was going to be this hard, He, he is only more solidified in the importance of his message and what it is that he is trying to tell people. And so he gathers them together to give them wisdom and encouragement to persevere in spite of the frailty of their own life and in spite of the persecution that they have. And that's something that suffering does to every one of us. 
whatever we might be suffering with, it has a way of getting us to consider what really matters and what have we been giving ourselves to that's just been superficial and hasn't been that important. And when we look at, well, how much time are we devoting to what's important? How much time are we devoting to what's not important? I heard materialism described by Mark Dever recently. He said, materialism is the stupid philosophy where people give everything for what will become nothing. Materialism is the stupid philosophy where people give everything for what will become nothing. And it's true. And when we suffer or someone we love suffers, it has a way of getting us to consider what really matters most in our lives. And for Paul, he can say to them honestly, I'm not guilty of any of your blood. I've spoken to you the whole counsel of God. I've explained to you what it meant in Deuteronomy and then what it meant here in Isaiah and what it meant here. I've poured myself out to explain to you the truth of the scripture. I don't want any of your gold or any of your apparel. I want you to know the God who is sovereign over all of that. I want you to know about the great God who purchased the church with his own blood, that he gave everything so that you and I could have life. He gave everything so that you and I could have hope beyond the grave. And so when we look around and we see suffering and we see sickness and we consider the the pain that it is to say bye to people, he says, I'm only more committed to tell you about God who purchased the church with his own blood, who gives us a hope beyond the grave. That for the Christian, death is not the end. It's where the gospel begins. It's where the gospel begins. Our Savior died and rose again. And so everything we say and do and believe is in light of the power of the resurrection. That all of us who will die can have hope beyond death and beyond the grave. And that's a part of the wisdom that he wants to pour out to them and he tells them there's going to be dangers people are going to come they're going to try to steal away things from you they're going to rise up from even your own ranks but keep on doing what you're doing nothing of the suffering nothing of the pain makes Paul stop doing what he wants to do because he concludes in just a wonderful way he says how Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive and if you're looking for a cross reference there isn't one This is something that Jesus said that Paul knows about, but we know about because Paul said it here. Because Paul did communicate with the risen Savior and could say to the church, this is something that the Lord Jesus said. Not something that I just heard from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Peter, but through Jesus Christ, who is alive and who has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm thankful it says more blessed because the danger is that we interpret this and say it's wrong to receive. Well, it's not. You can't give if someone doesn't receive. (laughs) There's a blessing in receiving. I mean, how many of you, if you just thought through the, the course of your life and you've been the recipients of so much generosity and so much grace and so much love and encouragement would say, there's a blessing in that. I have received a lot. There is a blessing in that. Absolutely there is. And there is a blessing when everything, every gift we're given then stirs in our heart an increasing desire to be people that would go and do likewise. That we can give to other people. That we can take whatever's been provided to us and pass it on to others. Man, that's even more of a blessing. Because now you get to participate on it on both ends. And so no one should be 
ever feeling a sense of guilt if you're in a situation where what you're looking for is primarily to receive some things. We all need to receive things at times. None of us are alive apart from receiving the air that's in this room. None of us are. But there is a a greater blessing that we would hopefully desire that in everything we receive, it stirs in us a desire only to continue to give so that someone else might receive. I mean, Paul is about to go to Jerusalem and offer to the poor the gifts of other people. They have to receive it for it to be a blessing. But he's also hoping that in this church in Jerusalem that when they see the compassion that has come to them, that they will be compassionate and say, you know what? I didn't really know that this was going to be something that non-Jews could participate in, but I can't deny it. And I'm so thankful for it. And in all of this, eventually what Paul is doing, he's ultimately giving himself to God. He's entrusting his life, his heart, his ministry, and his work into the hands of God and saying, everything I'm doing, I'm doing for you. And so you have to continue the work. You have to make it grow. And I just love how it ends in verses 36 through 38, that after he'd said all these things, they knelt down and prayed. Some of you have asked me why we don't kneel to pray more often. I've had bad knees since I was 10 years old, and so I started dying since I was 10 or something. I don't know. My knees just constantly crack. But they kneel and they pray, and they still weep together. I mean, tears are actually referred to multiple times in this chapter. And if you take everything Paul wrote, tears are referred to in almost everything he's written. He was not a man afraid to cry. And not just afraid to cry, he was not afraid to weep. Because he also knew there was nothing about the reality of the future that took away the pain that really does exist when we suffer. That really takes away the pain that when you're looking at someone and you love and you say, I don't know if I'm going to see you again. There's, There's nothing that we believe that ultimately takes away the sorrow that that should create in us. And so much so that they all weep together. And they say it, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. I mean, that is for so many of you and for me, the reality of what we're living in. You're not just reading Acts chapter 20 this morning. This is every single day of wondering if it was the last time you saw someone you loved. And it is okay to be broken over that and to weep. There's nothing in Scripture that would come to you or in me and say, you shouldn't cry. You should. You should just let the faucet run sometimes. And don't stop it. And allow yourself to weep. Because there is actually something in that weeping that is meant by God to be a reminder to you and to me that we really do long for a world that is better than this. We really do long for a home where no one parts from anyone, where no one we love suffers. And so when we weep and allow ourselves to feel the pain that truly does exist, it is meant in part to point us to another reality and to say, and you can say it to almost anyone, don't you really wish you lived in a world where no one suffered, where no one sinned, where no one hurt anyone? And most people on an honest day, I'd love to. 
The Jesus that we follow, who's risen again from the grave, has said to all of his followers that I am preparing a place for you, that where I am, there you may also be. That's what he's doing. And so Paul knows that in every experience, the Spirit has told him he's going to experience more persecution, more suffering. It confirms in him this desire that I don't want to live like this forever. I want to live with God forever. And I want to live in the home that God is making forever, where there will be no pain, where there will be no cry. And so many of the best of the songs that our Christian hymn writers have written are usually on this theme. And so I'm not taking a message right now. I'm looking up a song. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. Let me go one verse earlier. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, and love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Or at the end of a modern hymn, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me or you from his hand until he returns or calls us home. Here in the power of Christ we stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we entrust ourselves to you who does all things well. We acknowledge the frailty of our thoughts, of our bodies, of our minds, the limitations of our hearts. And we entrust ourselves to you who never grows weary, who never grows sick, who never grows tired, in whom there is no darkness at all. And we pray that all the trials and the pain and the suffering that we experience here and now would make us only desire to know you more and to love you more and to give ourselves completely to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.